We are in week number five of our series called The Cross and the Empty Tomb, talking about why we do the things we do. And as I've mentioned throughout the course of this series, this is something that I like to do every three or four years as, as well, number one, as just a reminder to us and as a refresher for why it is we do the things we do, but also in case you were not here three or four or seven years ago, when this series first came out, it gives you a chance to maybe understand why. And so I like to go back and, and hit some of these things. And it's, it's been interesting. It's not just a refresher for you guys that know these things, but it also is for me as well. As a matter of fact, it's, it's more than that. Because as I sit back down and I look at my messages from 2014, which is the last time I preached this, till now, I can see that there's an evolution of where I was then and how I understood things then to how I do now. And when I look at the 2014s all the way back to 2010, when I first wrote this series, there's a difference there to the point now that when I look at the 2010s and I look at the 2017s, you can see more understanding that, that comes along through this. So, just because I do this for a living, you know, get to be a quote-unquote professional Christian, doesn't mean that I don't still learn, right? And so if I can still learn, who else can still learn? Yeah, we can all still learn together. Uh, and so it's just really cool how God does that and shows you new things, which tells you that, you know, we won't ever have this thing licked, right? We'll never have this thing nailed. There's always more to learn. It's amazing how, and you, and you know this as well as I do, that when you are at different places and different stages in your life, the Spirit reveals new things to you from familiar things you've read in the past. Have you ever noticed that? That all of a sudden it's like, whoa, wait a minute. I've, I've always read that, but now that clicks. That makes sense. And you sort of see it through these different lenses. And I think that has to do with the way the Spirit works in our life and circumstances and different things like that, how they work. Well, like I said, this is the, the fifth installment of this series. And uh, I think we've got two more after this, and then we will, uh, we'll wrap it up right before, uh, right before Fall Festival. And then we'll do something different. And then I've got another series that is coming out that's going to take us into Christmas. Does anybody watch Stranger Things here? Okay, well, there's just a hint. I'm just going to leave that there, and you can sort of figure out what that means. But maybe there's a hint for a sermon series that's coming up. So uh, for the rest of you, be intrigued and just stick around and find out or come back and find out. Waiting on the results of a CT scan, blood tests, uh, she is feeling a little better. Keep praying. Keep praying. Yes, praise God. Praise God. Um, so last week, we started the first of a two-part message within this series on baptism or why we uh, why we baptize. You know, and I said that I'd been a lot of uh, been a part of a lot of different baptisms. Uh, both witnessing and getting to participate in and perform some of them. And I told you last week about the difference between a 
trained baptizer and an untrained baptizer. Well, I'm a trained baptizer, okay? I know how to do it, baptize people of all shapes and sizes, and really only get one arm wet, okay? Because that's what a trained baptizer can do. Now, several years ago, in fact, almost 20 years ago, I was very early into my ministry. I'd only been in it about a couple of years. This was in 1998. I was working for a church in Lawrenceburg, Tennessee, and I was the youth minister. And we had just this string of baptisms out of the youth ministry. It was incredible. Over this span of about three months, we had 15 teenagers that were were baptized. And it was just really awesome. And it brought about kind of just a a revival and a renewal uh, within that church. And it was really great, but it was also, there was really something kind of funny that was going on as well. Because that church had not had baptisms in years. I'm talking like decades. And I know that because I found the baptism registry. Okay, and I had to like blow the dust off of it to write in there. And it had been years since any baptisms have been recorded. Now then, what you don't often think about when it comes to baptizing somebody is the apparel that you wear into the water. Okay, somebody in my position or whoever happens to be baptizing, you know, you put on usually waders that are chest waders, and you go down into the water. One of the reasons why I managed to stay dry. Well, they had some waders, and so I'd put them in, and I'd go in, and I'd baptize the kid, and then I would come back out, and after almost every single baptism, there would be laughter, because those waders had a hole in them. And so, and the hole was really strategically placed so that when I came out of the baptistry, it always looked like I had a little trouble. All right in here. And it always looked like I'd had an accident, like I was nervous in the water or something. And it got to just be funny. And I kept saying, hey, we need some new waiters. Like, nah, that was pretty funny. We don't really need any. Hey, we don't want to break the streak, you know. Well, finally, after 14, I convinced them to go get some new waiters. And 15 rolled around. I got these brand spanking new waiters. Went in, baptized the kid. Uh, You know, my pants were dry and the baptisms dried up, uh, pun intended. There were no more baptisms after that. I don't, know, I don't know if those two things were connected, but it was really, really, it was really funny. But it was just, it was kind of this funny thing that was happening in the midst of just this sort of revival that was, was going on in, the, in our youth ministry and, and in our church. What was so great about that is we were seeing kids get connected, find out who they are, figure out where they belong because that's really important is it not it is so important because everybody wants to belong right everybody wants to go where everybody knows your name you know what i'm talking about is but is that not true is that not why people go to bars and places like that because we long for community Because we long to be in fellowship. We long to be in relationship. Everybody wants to be accepted, right? 
And if you've been this, you'll know what I'm talking about. It is not fun to be an outsider. Okay? It's not fun to feel like you're on the outside. It's not fun to be marginalized. It is not fun to feel like, you know, you're the, you're the new kid. Because we all need community. And it's through baptism that we find community. Last week we said that through baptism we find our true identity. And that identity is being a part of the community of God. Now, last week I said this, but I think it bears repeating that baptism is so much more, and I, I, I don't want you to miss this, baptism is so much more than making sure we get the formula right. You know, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. And there are a lot of people, and I've taught this myself years ago, that if you don't get that right, if you don't get that absolutely nailed perfect, well, then you're, you're in trouble. Okay, and there are a lot of people that have come to baptism that way, okay? And it's like if we don't get the formula down or if we don't get the recipe together just right, we're missing out on salvation. But there's a big, big problem with that. That means salvation is dependent upon us and our ability to get things right. But it's our inability to get things right that got us in this mess in the first place in needing a savior and so while that might work for some people i think there's a better approach to thinking about baptism the first is trusting in the power of jesus and that's the that's the most maybe the most important thing is that we we trust in jesus but I would suggest a better approach is that when we think of baptism, it's not so much to think of it as something that we, we absolutely have to do or we're going to burn in hell for all eternity, but to think of it as something that we are invited into by Jesus. It is something that we get to participate in because the mercy and the grace of God. So last week we looked at this statement that's been just pretty much accepted universally by this, you know, this world council of churches that says, okay, this is what we think about baptism. Okay, and so this document was drafted and all these representatives from these churches say, yes, these are the things that we sort of affirm. These are the things that we think about it. We'll call it the, uh, the statement on baptism, Eucharist, and ministry. And so what that statement does is it organizes the meaning of baptism around these five theological ideas. Uh, as the, the product of a thorough discussion of Scripture, the interaction of multiple Christian communions, the simplicity and the depth of these points are, are very captivating. And so we talked about those last week, but I want to review them again. According to, to what this is saying most Christians think about baptism, baptism is thought of as this. As first, it is the participation in Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, as we take communion, that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about Christ's death and resurrection. As we are baptized, we are participating in that death and resurrection, right? That's what we participate in. The second thing, baptism is thought of as conversion, as pardoning and cleansing. Okay, it's taking care of the sin problem that we have. Okay, but that's not the only thing it does. 
It is where we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to reside in every single believer as the, the comforter, as the counselor, the one that empowers us to do works of ministry, that gives us the ability to hold our tongue when we really want to say whatever it is that comes into our mind. You know what I'm saying? It gives us the ability to love that person that is incredibly unlovable. Okay, It gives us the ability to be patient in the midst of absolute chaos. The Spirit empowers us to find joy even in the worst of circumstances. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that we receive. Number four, it is incorporation into the body of Christ. It is becoming part of the community. It is becoming part of the, the family, our identity, figuring out where we belong. And finally, it's viewed... It's viewed as a sign of the coming of the kingdom of God. X-rays taken. And so that's sort of what that statement is. You know, and I think that gives us a, a fairly good working definition, or at least these theological ideas to think about what baptism means for us. Because as you look through Scripture, you can see all of those things happening and all of them are, are very very important well last week I, I told you that it's very easy when you start thinking about baptism especially if you're from the restoration movement the churches of Christ like like I am you know I'm, I'm dyed in the wool I've been here my whole life you know it is very easy when you start talking about baptism because that's our texts you know, that's the ones we, we really have down. It is so easy to just go straight to the book of Acts, to go straight to Paul, to go straight to Peter and, and see what those guys said, okay? But I also told you last week that I've got this, just this thought that I heard recently that is just, it's rattling around in my head that I heard from one of my professors when he says, we, you know, we need to stop privileging Paul over Jesus, and so that's why last week we began with the baptism of Jesus. Why not begin with that baptism that shows us the way, that teaches us about identity, that teaches us about what we need to do and how we go about it and, and what it means for us. And so now, now we come to Acts chapter 2. Now we'll look at what happened as the church came into existence and we're going to get to verse 38 because you know that's our verse that's our one if you grew up in the churches of Christ every time you went to buy a new Bible you know the first verse you looked at was Acts 2 38 to see if that's the one to see if it sounded right and I remember doing that so many times as I would buy a Bible and we're going to get to that verse but I think before we get there we have to understand the context of what led to all of those baptisms that flowed out of that the context is the sermon the sermon that Peter preaches it's the day of Pentecost it's 50 days after after Passover 50 days after Passover, and it's when the people of God would celebrate when the law was given to Moses on, on Mount Sinai. They would celebrate this, and so the people are in Jerusalem. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. Peter and the apostles, they've been waiting in Jerusalem because the Lord told them, don't go anywhere. Wait, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. 
They wait. They go into this period of prayer that lasts about 10 days, and then the Holy Spirit is going to descend on them. Now, everybody is gathered in Jerusalem, in Jerusalem for Passover, and they receive this fulfillment of the Holy Spirit. This is what we're fixing to read about. They begin speaking in, in different languages, and the native Jews understand what they're hearing. But then there's Jews from all over the place that are maybe proselyte Jews. They're, they're, they're people who have converted to Judaism. They begin hearing the message in their own language. And the implications of this are huge. Because if you'll remember way back in the Old Testament, remember the story of Babel, the Tower of, of Babel, where the people thought they'd build this tower to God, and God said no. And he confused their languages so that they, they couldn't understand one another. All of humanity was divided through their languages. But what's going to happen here in Acts 2 at Pentecost is that they're all brought back together. Now then, there's cynics everywhere. There's cynics and there's naysayers. There are people who will always question and always mock what God is going to do. And we're going to see that happen in this story, too. It sounds just like today. You know, you'll, you'll, people will write hateful things in a blog or on social media. Say things like, people are crazy. Here, the people are going to accused of, be accused of, of being drunk. But you see, the power of God always threatens the world and its status quo. This is what we see happening. So let's read in, in Acts chapter 2. And if you just want to listen along as the story unfolds, that's fine. But listen to this sermon that Peter preaches that leads to all of these baptisms. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying they saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them then they were filled with the holy spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the spirit enabled them now they were there were jews staying in jerusalem devout people from every nation under heaven and when this sound occurred a crowd came together and was confused because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in, in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jew and converts, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But some sneered and said, They're drunk on wine. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all residents of Jerusalem, let me explain to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on 
all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servant in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes, then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, with wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Now drop down to verse 32. God has raised this Jesus. And we're all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out on you both what you see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So there it is. That's the first sermon that was ever preached after the ascension of Jesus. That's the first sermon ever preached to the, the quote, the church. And it's kind of ironic that Peter is the one preaching it because just, you know, a month and a half earlier, Peter was the one denying Jesus three times in front of everybody. You remember that? But yet, here's Peter on the day of Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaching, testifying about Jesus. And what we see is that God uses an unfaithful disciple to lead the charge. It goes to show that God can use anyone regardless of their past. That's important for us to note, isn't it? That it doesn't matter what our past is. If we are willing to be used by God, God will use us. And so then Joel starts to talk about the prophecy. He points back to Joel and he says, don't you know what's going to happen? That I'm going to pour out my spirit. This is what, what, what God is speaking through Joel. I'm going to pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. We, we can't ignore that. That's there. 
Your sons, your daughters, they will prophesy. I'm going to declare my wonders all over the earth. This is what's coming. This is what was here. This was Jesus. Everything they do, everything they do is pointed to Jesus. Peter is pointing out that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the one they've been waiting on. This is the one who's going to come and would, would fix the world and going to end oppression. The spirit, the miracles, everything is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the one who came to set the world to rights. The message is all about Jesus. So what's the response of the people? Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words he testified and strongly urged them saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized that day. And about 3,000 people were added to them. That's a pretty good beginning, is it not? It's pretty powerful to see how God worked among his people and how he turned the darkness into the light and really revealed that the light was there all along, that maybe some of them just couldn't see it. You see, the thing with the book of Acts is that you, you, can't, you can't read Acts without seeing the importance and the significance of baptism. It's absolutely everywhere. And it's all about inclusion into the community of faith, into the community of God. And where there's a conversion story, there is a baptism. Baptism is an affirmation of <clears throat> being incorporated into the life and the work of God and Jesus through the Holy Spirit. People are continually signing up to be a part of what God is doing as he offers life, as he offers community, as he offers forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And the people, they couldn't wait to be a part of that. They couldn't wait to be a part of this, of this community. You know, if you, if you read through Acts and kind of notice the conversion stories, you'll see that, you know, when they wanted to be baptized, nobody said, well, hey, we're scheduling them in a month. Sign up for a slot and we'll make sure you get one. You know, there's that language that you, you see, that urgency phrase. What keeps them from being baptized? Or what would keep me from being baptized right now? Why would you wait if it's not important, if it's not necessary, if it's not vital? You know, if it's a nice thing, you know, you can wait on a nice thing. But if it's life-changing, why would anybody wait? Why would anybody wait to step into the community of faith, the community of, of God, and receive all of these things. They never put it off. They never scheduled it. 
They said, let's go, let's do this, because it was so vital, so important. You start reading through there, and you go to Acts chapter 8, and you read about this, uh, this Ethiopian eunuch. Referring to him as the queen's treasurer is a much nicer way to think of him. I'm sure he would appreciate that. But he's riding along in a chariot. He's been to Jerusalem. He's got a copy of the scriptures. He's reading. He doesn't know really what he's reading. And through the Spirit, Philip is dispatched to this guy. Shows up, walks up to him, says, hey, what are you reading? He's reading from the book of Isaiah. He asks, does he understand it? And the guy says, no, I need somebody to explain it to me. And so Philip jumps in the chariot and explains to him all the way to Jesus from that point. And so they come across some water, and the guy turns to Philip, and he says, hey, there's some water right there. What keeps me from being baptized right now? Philip says, nothing. They stop the chariot, they go over to the cow pond, he's baptized, and he goes on his way rejoicing. Acts chapter 10. You have uh, Cornelius, who is this, this God-fearer. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. And Peter has had this sort of this lesson about God accepting people. You remember that? Saying that he'll accept anybody from all tongues, all nations, anybody who fears the Lord, that God loves all of those people and accepts them. So he sends Peter to Cornelius' house. And he gets there. He's not sure about it, but he goes in and he explains Jesus to them. And, and they become believers. And he says, can anyone withhold water and prevent them from, from being baptized? And it says that his whole household, his whole household was baptized. Acts chapter 16, one of my, my favorite stories in Acts. Paul is on a missionary journey. He is with, uh, with Silas and, and Luke and maybe Timothy. But Silas and, and, and uh, Paul are out kind of in the, maybe the bazaar, and they're, they're preaching, and this little girl with a demon uh, comes behind them and starts proclaiming that they're here, they're God's people, they're with Jesus. And so Paul turns around and rebukes that evil spirit out of the girl, and you think it's a cause for celebration, everybody'd be excited. But this girl's a slave. And her masters have been making money off her demon possession. You remember this story? And so they're furious because now their livelihood is, is threatened. And so they have um, Paul and Silas arrested. And they don't just throw them in jail. They beat them with rods first. I mean, beat them severely. Throw them in jail. They're in jail. And they start singing. And an earthquake happens. And it says the jail burst open and their chains fell off. And the jailer, knowing he's going to die because all the prisoners surely must have escaped, is about ready to fall on his sword when Paul says, hey, it's cool, don't do it, we're still here. And the jailer's moved by this. And he goes in and he sees, and Paul has to explain what's going on to him because the next thing you know Paul and Silas are at the jailer's house. And he's tending to the wounds of Paul and Silas. And they explain Jesus to him. And the jailer says, well, in the morning, 
Or when everybody gets off work, let's go be baptized. No. It says they were all baptized at midnight. They wanted to be a part of what was going on. They saw something in Paul and Silas that said, that is different. I don't understand this. I don't know what it is. But I want to be in on whatever it is you are in on. I want to be a part of this community. A guy named Childers, he says this. He says, the essence of Christian baptism is more than just the cleansing forgiveness of sins, the act of joining the church or experience of personal renewal. He says, the essence of Christian baptism is total identification with Jesus and his mission through self-denial according to the rhythms of the gospel story. think the jailer saw that in Paul and Silas. Saw what they were about. Realized that there is something different going on in these guys' lives. And he wanted it. He wanted to be a part of what they were doing. You see, and I think I think Paul I think Paul understood well. Because as he starts writing to the Galatians in chapter 3, he's talking about baptism. And he's talking about this very thing. He's not just talking about their salvation. He's not just saying that you were baptized and you've gotten into the sin management program. But he's writing and saying, this is your new identity. He says, for those of you who were baptized into Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. You know, he gives us that metaphor, you've put him on. So that people see that. Okay, now then, let, let, me, let me tell you something too. When you, when you see you in scripture, you know, most of us are southerners. We like the word y'all. Read that as y'all. Okay, for those of y'all who were baptized into Christ, you have been baptized into Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. So if y'all have been baptized, you've been clothed with Christ. You have put him on. People see that, or at least they should see that, right? But watch, he doesn't stop there. He goes on, and he says, there is no Jew or Greek there is no slave nor free. There is no male nor female since you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying a lot right there. That's, that's heavy what he's saying. Through our baptism, we are clothed with Christ Baptism, it allows us to see equality in one another. Do you see that? 
Because in Jesus, there is no Jew or Greek. There are no nationality markers. There are no markers of, of bondage or freedom. There are no markers that are gender specific. We are all on equal footing in the eyes of Jesus. We are all one in Christ. That's our, that's our identity. So why are we baptized? It's really similar to what last week was. In baptism, we identify with Jesus and his mission. If Paul's identity and mission weren't secure in Jesus, things probably would have gone a lot different in Philippi. Things would have gone a lot differently in that jail cell as he interacted with that jailer. But because he understood who he is, his identity is in Christ. In fact, he says that later on, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. That's what he's saying. This is who I am now. The life that I now lead, I lead by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who I am. That's who you are too through baptism. That's our true identity, that we are those sons and daughters. We are crucified with Christ. We are the ones that the Joel prophecy is talking about. We are the ones who have had the Spirit poured out on us. We are the ones that should be prophesying about Jesus. Because that's our true identity. That's where we belong. I'll give you one really cool baptism story. Several years ago, I don't, I don't know how long it was, how long it's been, but I was at uh, camp, and somebody was studying with one of the campers, high school kids, and, and I was in there. I don't remember if I was asked to be there or if the kid was in my cabin or what. I, I don't even remember. I don't even know the kid's name. I don't even remember his face. But I know that, that somebody was teaching this kid about Jesus and teaching him about the kingdom and saying, this is who you can be. This is who you are. This is what God has done for you. This is what he offers. This is who God meant for you to be in Jesus. And you saw like the light come on. And the kid jumped up and he sprinted all the way across Camp Wiregrass in the dead of night down to the pool where the whole rest of the camp was gathered doing baptisms. Now you get down there, and we're, like, we're sprinting across this field in pitch black. We don't know what we're going to run into or step on or fall over. Okay, but I'm running just as fast as I can trying to keep up with this kid 
who is running. We get down there, and they're all surrounding the pool, and, and somebody had been baptizing them, and he's already in the water. And this kid comes, and he like pushes his way through the crowd, walks down into the water, says, I believe in Jesus, baptize me. And the guy baptized him right there on the spot. It was awesome. That was one of the greatest baptisms. I, in fact, I've got, I've got, somebody would say, spirit bumps right now thinking about that. Because this guy realized what his true identity was, and he ran to Jesus. It was incredibly powerful. You see, in baptism, we recognize and we step into, we embrace our true identity. But also, that means we're embracing the mission of Jesus as well. Because we're following after him. We're taking up a cross daily and, and, and following him. And so, yeah, while forgiveness of sins comes along with baptism, and that's a pretty big deal, right? I mean, that's a big deal. There's more. Isn't that always the way it is with God, that there's always more than what you thought there was? There's so much more. This right here that we get to participate in right now, this is because of our identity in Christ. Okay? Sitting around at Oktoberfest and Fall Festival and stuff like that and going to Providence Plaza and Vashti is all because of our identity in Christ. Did you know you would get to do those things when you became a Christian? Did you expect to? It's just the more that God says, hey, I got more for you. There's a deeper, richer significance. And you might think you're one thing, or people might have convinced you that you are one thing, but that's not who you really are. Who you really are is my son, is my daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. That's the significance of baptism. Let's pray together.